What does it take to be an enemy of the cross of Christ? What does it take? Do you have to burn a Bible? Maybe join a, a group such as ISIS or Boko Haram and kidnap and execute Christians? What does it take to be an enemy of the cross of Christ? Surely such people who, who commit such atrocities against Christians are enemies of the cross. But what if I told you that it's actually much easier than that to be an enemy of the cross of Christ? If, in fact, many people are enemies of the cross of Christ, and they don't even realize that they are. That many, this, this morning, right now, are sitting in church pews across northwest Arkansas. Uh, they, maybe they've put money in the offering plate. They've donated to charity. They've, they've been part of projects to, to dig freshwater wells in developing countries. And for all that, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Perhaps some are singing praises in, in choirs this morning, leading worship, maybe in the, in the congregation with, with eyes closed, with tears on their faces, singing to God, and yet are enemies of the cross of Christ. While they claim to worship God, in practice, Monday through Saturday, they have another God that they serve. While they claim to give glory to Christ and to love Jesus, in fact, they glory in idols and love themselves. While they think they're headed for heaven, their final destination will be anything but heaven. What if I told you that it was so easy to be an enemy of the cross of Christ? Now this morning, I don't want to just frighten you needlessly. I don't, I don't enjoy frightening people just for fun. I don't want to simply get up here and and just say things just because. But I do have an obligation to preach the word of God. And the scriptures, in, in the scriptures that God has given us, as this lamp unto our feet, this light into our path, he has lit our way. And along the way, he's, he gives us various warnings about ways that we can be off track. And in fact, that often people are off track. They think they're going to heaven, but in fact, they're going to hell. And so God gives us various warnings in Scripture. And one thing that the, war, the New Testament warns us of time and time again is, is false Christians and false teachers. We're given the, the warning signs clearly so that we can make sure that we aren't one of them and that we don't follow their false teaching. You know, and having tested ourselves, we also want to make sure that that the crew that we're running with, the, the Christians who are speaking into our lives, the ones that we're following, are themselves leading us in the truth and not in error. And get this, they can do that either by their words or by their walk, by what they say or by how they live. Scripture warns us of false teaching, false words, and we've been thinking about that as we've been going through Philippians 3 but it also warns us, even, even as Christians, 
to watch out for bad examples so that we're not hindered in our spiritual growth by following those who lead bad examples, even if in some respects they have the right words. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Philippians 3. And if uh, you're using the Pew Bible this morning, you can find this passage on page 922. Page 922 in the Pew Bible this morning. And uh, if you need a new Bible or you know someone who does, uh, please take that Pew Bible with you. Don't put it back. Just bring it home with you or give it to someone. Let that be our gift to you this morning. Page 922. Philippians chapter 3. We're picking up where we left off last week. And we'll be beginning in Philippians 3 and verse 17. And we're going to read down to chapter 4, verse 1 this morning. Philippians 3.17 through 4.1. It's, it's kind of closing off a, a section there of Paul's letter in Philippians. And as you find your place, I'm going to ask those who are able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You may be seated. Well, here in these verses, the Spirit of God, through the pen of Paul, not only encourages right living, as, as he encourages the believers there in, in Philippi to imitate his way of life as he lives the Christian life, but also he warns of the outcome of wrong living. He warns of the outcome of wrong living. And he warns about that, not because salvation is dependent upon how much good we do. No, that was the error he warned about in the beginning of chapter 3. Salvation is not by works. It is for those who put no confidence in the flesh, who look away from themselves and look only to Christ and trust in his righteousness alone as their only way to get to heaven. His sacrifice on the cross, I'm trusting that alone. And yet, that doesn't mean that those who live lives of rampant sin and continue to just follow the course of this world will go to heaven. And the reason is that wrong living betrays wrong believing. Wrong living is a sign of wrong believing. If your life is a headlong pursuit of sin and the pleasures of this world, the reason is that you don't truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not the one that you are hoping in. 
you are rather trusting in other things, in other gods who can give no salvation. And therefore, the end of that is destruction. The end of that is destruction. And that's what, to, what we need to notice about these people that Paul warns of in this text. He's not talking about just Christians who see things a little differently. He's talking about enemies of the cross of Christ. And their end is not just like a, a lower place in heaven. Their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. The lesson for us in this text is that true citizens of heaven will live heavenly lives. Not perfectly. It's not that they never sin, but if you look at their lives over the long term, true citizens of heaven will live heavenly lives. They won't be described by the things that describe these enemies of the cross. And the reason is because they are believing in the king of heaven. Their hope is in heaven. They are looking to heaven and not to this world. So what we need to do as we look at this text, if we're going to follow Paul's instruction and imitate those who are following Christ, who, who trust in Christ alone and are living heavenly lives, we need, to, we need to have a clear understanding, a clear picture of the traits of those, the, the characteristics of those who are not living heavenly lives, those enemies of the cross that we need to be warned about, to, not to follow them, and so that we can have a clearer picture of, of who we should walk with, how, the, the kind of people that we should imitate as they are following Christ. So our two points this morning, first of all, we're going to consider traits of the enemies of the cross, and then secondly, traits of a true citizen of heaven. Traits of the enemies of the cross, and then traits of true citizens of heaven. First of all, point number one, traits of the enemies of the cross. What marked out these people? What do their lives look like? How could we spot those who are following in their disastrous path in our own day? There were some in New Testament times who were plaguing the early church with this idea and which they lived out in practice, that because God has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future, well, we can just live on in sinfulness. We can sleep around and get drunk, and it doesn't matter. You know, Christ has forgiven all that, so why don't we live it up now and enjoy all of the sinful pleasures around us and, you know, while we can, and then we'll go to heaven, you know, when Christ comes back. Let's, let's just enjoy this, the pleasures of sin since Christ has already forgiven us anyways. These were people who, were, who weren't openly denying Christ. They weren't saying, you know, hey, Christ is false. Don't, don't trust him. But the book of Titus talks about those who were denying him by their works. Their talk was maybe saying one thing, but their walk was saying another thing. The book of Jude speaks of those who have crept in unnoticed. So people that were in the community of the church, they weren't simply outsiders, but these were people who have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly people who pervert, they twist, they distort the grace of our God into sensuality 
and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So turning the grace of God as, in, as into some kind of like free pass to sin. How are these enemies of the cross described here in our own text in Philippians in verse 19? We have around roughly four descriptions of their characters. Their end, their God, their glory, and their mindset. Verse 19 says, their end is destruction. These people are headed for hell. They're not headed for heaven, despite what they say. Secondly, their God is their belly. Well, that, and that sounds kind of strange to us, perhaps. Maybe sounds a bit funny, but what this is saying is that they lived for the passions and the pleasures of the body. They lived for the, the pleasures of, of food and for drink for sex, for comfort, for ease. The, these, these bodily pleasures are what ruled them. They served these things. And because these things ruled their lives, think of various addictions perhaps, because these things ruled their lives, they, they served the, the pleasures of the body, the comforts of the body. Because of that, Paul's saying really their God is their belly. In other words, their, their fleshly appetites. That's their true God. That's the one that they serve. That's the one that they are, they are faithfully making sure that, that this God has, has, is, is well taken care of. That these, all of their sacrifices are regularly placed before this God. Other things may have to, to, to suffer. Other things may have to compromise, but I will hold on to my, my comfort, my ease, my, my good food, my whatever it may be. They glory in their shame, we're told. So instead of glorying in the cross, they gloried and, and rejoiced in the things of this world. And that could be, I mean, we can look around us in our culture today and we can see people glorying in very shameful things. But perhaps this is even more broadly. Anything, even otherwise innocent things, even things that aren't necessarily sinful, if you elevate them to the status of a God and if you live your life for them, at the end of the day, you're going to be ashamed that you gloried in such things. Perhaps it's a, you know, a sports career and, and you're glorying in your achievements as an athlete or, or as a businessman or, or in other less, you know, less flashy ways. Any glorying in human achievement, at the, end of, at the end of time, that's going to be seen as vanity. We're going to be ashamed that we boasted in such things. Perhaps it's, uh, some people, a lot, a lot of people nowadays glory in physical fitness. Just go to the gym and you'll see it. People glorying in what Philippians says is their lowly body. This, this is a, a temporary body. This body is subject to decay. It's going to die. It's going to rot in the ground. And people glory in it. They post selfies of it. They want everyone to see. Glorying in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. Our text says in verse 19. This, this could really be a, a summary statement of the previous traits. What is it to have a mind set on earthly things. Well, you'll see it 
when, when you have your belly for your God, when you're living for the comforts and the pleasures of the body, when you're serving them, when, when you're glorying in your shame rather than in the cross of Christ, the, the earthly mind is what leads to the destruction. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what has your heart? What has your heart? Is it, is it Christ? Does he have your heart? Is it the hope that awaits you that Christ has promised you, the, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Or is it the things of this world? What has your heart? Whatever has your heart will have your mind. There, it's there that your mind will be dwelling on the things that you love most. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, speaks of the heavenly mindset of faith as looking not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away like, like vapor. But the things that are unseen are eternal. But to be earthly-minded is the opposite. That's where you're looking to the things that are seen. You're looking to the things that are transient. The things all around us that we can grab hold of, that we can taste, that we can feel, that we can smell. We live for these things, for this world. We're looking to those things. That's that's earthly-mindedness. Colossians 3 says to believers that if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What's being called for in in Colossians 3 that that I just read? Heavenly mindedness, not earthly mindedness. We're to set our minds on things above. We're to set our hope on the things that are future, not the things that are here below, not the things that are present. Earthly mindedness, looking to what is seen and transient and passing and momentary, setting our minds on things below. It's been said that The soul is where it loves rather than where it lives. The soul is where it loves rather than where it lives. Where's your soul this morning? Is your soul being raised up to heaven? Is your mind set on those things above? Or is it cleaving to this earth, holding on to the things of this world? If the earth has your heart, it will have your mind too. Your thoughts will be always wandering after the passing pleasures of this life. They'll be what you daydream about, what you seek. John Chrysostom, when he preached on this passage around 1,600 years ago, he said this. He said, Let us build houses. Where, I ask? On the earth, they answer. Let us purchase farms. On the earth again. Let us obtain power. Again, on the earth. 
let us gain glory again on the earth. Let us enrich ourselves. All these things are on the earth. These are those who set their minds on earthly things. Everything that they're pursuing is here below. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow they, we die. Minds set on earthly things. But this earthly-mindedness isn't just materialism. It's not just the pursuit of, of cars and clothes and houses and, and living for these things. The Pharisees were earthly-minded in that they loved the, the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, Jesus said in, in John 12. The hypocrites that Jesus warned about in Matthew 6 were earthly-minded even in their religion, because in helping the poor and in praying and in fasting, they were doing it for an earthly reward. They wanted people here below to see them and to praise them. And Jesus said they have their reward. In other words, that's the only reward they'll ever have for that kind of earthly-minded religion. Proverbs are read. You know, people even read the Bible. But for what? Not to know God not to know the, the hope that is set before us at the resurrection, but simply to learn some good business practices so that, they're, so that they can make more money in this world, so they can recognize a con artist better, so that they can have more financial success. Prayers are prayed, but mainly just for the continuing of earthly comforts and physical safety. Hey, if God is going to give me a promotion at work, if he's going to prosper my way, if he's going to protect my family... I'm, I'm good with a God like that. God, give me these earthly blessings. We, we come to God as like some kind of vending machine to get earthly blessings. And, and what we're doing is we're recruiting God to help us serve our idols. Is your religion focused on an easier life here in this world and the increase of earthly comforts and earthly enjoyments? Or is it focused on God, on knowing God, on attaining to the, to the resurrection of the dead and the hope that is set before us in preparing for the age to come? Earthly mindedness is stressing over your kids' education and financial situations more than their soul situations. A greater focus on leaving them an earthly inheritance than an eternal one. Earthly-mindedness is when you can think long hours about your business, but scarce give a thought about the business of your soul and the kingdom of God. Earthly-mindedness is when you become an expert in physical health and wellness and remain a, a complete novice in diagnosing illnesses of the soul and the symptoms of sin in your own heart and mind. Earthly-mindedness is when you are an expert in sports statistics and, and you can watch hours of sports, but you struggle to meditate on a verse of Scripture for 10 minutes. Earthly-mindedness is when your prayer closet stays closed for days and your Bible collects dust, but all of your notifications that come up on your cell phone stay regularly checked and your status is regularly updated on your social media Earthly-mindedness is when you see people according to the flesh. You look at them, and you just see their appearance. 
their personality, their, their status, how cool they are, the clothes they have, their skin color, their education, and you treat them better or worse depending on these things. It could go on, but the, the point is that earthly-mindedness is when we're so in love with the, the comforts, the pleasures, the things of this life. They have our, our main attention, our sole focus. We're, we're living for the now. We're living as though you only live once. And the problem is you will see such people as enemies of the cross of Christ when at any point the moment of testing comes and they're called with a, with a choice. Am I going to part with the comforts and the pleasures and the things of this world for Christ's sake? When, when you can only have one or the other, when you can only have the job or you can follow Christ faithfully, when you can maintain those friendships or those family relationships or you can follow Christ faithfully, when you can hold on to the things that you prize here below or follow Christ, it's in those moments that the moment of testing comes and these people, they're so in love with this world that they choose the world over Christ. As Jeremiah Burroughs puts it, earthly mindedness is the seed of apostasy. This form of life, this way of life, the way of the cross that Paul described as he was eager even to share in Christ's sufferings and becoming like him in his death, if only to be with Christ. That's what mattered to Paul. I just want to be with Christ. I want to be with him if, if need be in his sufferings. I will be persecuted for his sake if need be. Only let me be with Christ and let me attain to the glory of the resurrection that he will give. But that way of life, that threatens everything that these enemies of the cross hold dear. And so when the moment of testing comes, they cling to this earth, weighed down with the trinkets and the toys of this world, rather than soaring to the heavens to be united with Christ. But what, in contrast, what does it look like to be a true citizen of heaven? What, what marks the heavenly citizen out in contrast from these who are earthly-minded and whose God is their belly and whose end is destruction, these enemies of the cross. And this brings us to our second point this morning, traits of true citizens of heaven. Traits of true citizens of heaven. We see that, that they have heaven for their home. Heaven is their home and heaven is their hope. Notice that our text says our, our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, we're not at home in this world. Christians are compared as to, to sojourners and exiles in this world, in this age, this present evil age. As those who are here temporarily on their way to their true home. And in a real way, Scripture expects us to be homesick for heaven. Whenever I was seven, I remember going to summer camp, and it was my first time to be out of the house for, I think it was like 10 days, which is a lot for a seven-year-old who had rarely spent a night away from his parents. And, you know, after about maybe 12 to 24 hours, I was just ready to go home. 
I didn't care about all the basketball and all the candy and all the, all the games and everything that was going on at the summer camp, all the swimming. I just wanted to go home and be with my parents. I wanted to, to be in my own bedroom. And I actually went to my pastor and I was like, can you call my parents and have them come get me? And he was, he was able to convince me that, hey, you know, you can stick it out. Your parents want you to be here. They want you to have a good time. And it ended up being okay. Uh, I had some good friends who, who really went out of their way to, to help me have a good time. And so eventually I was able to enjoy the camp a little bit. But I will tell you, whenever that bus rolled up to take me back home, I was very happy. And I was, I was looking forward to going home. Even though that bus ride would be uncomfortable, you know, a bunch of smelly camp kids and all packed in this bus in the middle of the hot summer, I was, I was glad that we were headed home. Brothers and sisters, are you homesick for heaven? Do you even see, see death? Like I saw that bus. You know, it's going to be uncomfortable. But you know what? It's taking me home. It's taking me where I want to be. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And where he is, that's heaven to me. I want to see him face to face who died for me. Or does death to you seem to be the end of all good? You don't even want to think about it because it would mean leaving so much. All the things that you hold dear in this world. Heaven is home for a Christian. Our citizenship is in heaven. You know, those who are stationed overseas in the military, I know, I know some of you that have, have been there, and, and some of you have been stationed overseas perhaps, and, and uh, you know, the mail, mail would come at times from loved ones or news from back home. And, and anytime you could hear some news from back home or you could see some of that familiar handwriting, you know, you, you read that, you reread it, you thought about it, you found yourself at times daydreaming. You know, what might they be doing at home right now? So it is for the Christian for whom heaven is home. We're, we're eager to hear from the Lord our God, to read and, and reread his letter to us, the Bible. We, we imagine and, and daydream about the joy that awaits us when we see him face to face. Do you have fellowship with God? Do you have fellowship with God? Do you hunger in your soul for a deeper, closer fellowship with God? Is the song of your heart just a closer walk with thee? Grant it, Jesus, tis my plea. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are awaiting on him, and it's our blessed hope when he will appear. Well, there's, there's an ethical side of this as well. Our citizenship is in heaven, and this idea of citizenship would have uh, spoken powerfully to these Philippians, uh, many of whom were citizens of Rome, Philippi was a Roman colony. So this idea of citizenship, to have Roman citizenship in the ancient world was something that was highly prized. And as a citizen of heaven, we want to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven here in this world. This isn't just like a, some badge that we put on and take off 
Our, our desire is not to just, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans, or what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, wherever we are, we want to, we want to bear with us that we're citizens of heaven. This isn't something we try to hide, but it's something that we want to wear with honor and dignity. I belong to King Jesus. I'm one of his people. I am a citizen of heaven. And we, and we long for his direction on how we're to live as citizens of heaven as we sojourn in this world. Consider Psalm 119. I am a sojourner on the earth, it says. Hide not your commandments from me. Your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And so just because the world says it's acceptable to watch certain things on the TV screen or to look certain, at certain things on your phone screen, we take our orders from heaven. And just because the world forbids something, Again, we take our orders from heaven. If the world says it's acceptable to avenge yourselves in certain ways, guess what? We take our orders from heaven. If the world says it's okay to, to cancel toxic people from your lives, hey, that may be okay in the world, but we take our orders from heaven. And our king has told us to strive to be at peace with all men, to be peacemakers to forgive those who trespass against it, us, and to make every effort to, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're to live by a higher code, a heavenly code. The code of our master who said to love our enemies and then live by his own code when he loved us. We're to forgive as we've been forgiven. We're to love as we've been loved. You know, the world may allow us to sue one another, but 1 Corinthians 6, Christians don't sue other Christians. I've heard of Christians suing one another, and it, it breaks my heart. It's a shameful travesty. We're living like citizens of the world rather than citizens of heaven, and it may be that some who are doing that are. The, our, the code that we live by calls us to be peacemakers, and so... You know, whenever we have disagreements amongst us, perhaps many of your friends at work, as, as you share about, you know, trouble that you're having with someone at your church, perhaps, they might, they might think it's perfectly fine. You know what, just, just move along. You know, you don't need to mess with that person. They don't need to be in your life. But what would heaven call us to do? What would it look like to, for us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Well, no matter how hard and humiliating it might be, maybe we need to get some help. We can't work this out between us, so guess what? We're not going to give up. We're going to go get mediation. We're going to go get a counselor. I'm going I'm to humble myself and even allow this person to maybe point things out in me that might make me uncomfortable. But you know what? It's for the purpose of peace and maintaining the unity we have as citizens together of the kingdom of heaven. That's more important than my comfort. We're citizens of heaven together. Let's live by the code of our king. You know, even true Christians will be challenged. At times, we're not going to live as we should. You know, Colossians 3 that I, that I read earlier, 
It's speaking to Christians when it tells us, hey, if you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above. The reason that the scripture tells us to us, even to Christians, is that even as Christians, even as those who dwell, whose souls are, are knit to God and whose citizenship is in heaven, even we can be very earthly minded at times. We're being sanctified. We're being changed. But you know what? That process doesn't happen overnight. And so we need to be exhorted to set our minds on things above and to await the Savior, to remember where our hope lies. And so don't be discouraged if, if perhaps you're being convicted this morning. That doesn't necessarily mean that your end is destruction. Perhaps it is. Perhaps, perhaps the reason that you're consistently just focused and consumed with the things of this earth is that you don't know Christ. And the good news for you this morning is that you can know him this morning. You can enter into a saving relationship with the king of the universe, with the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead so that all who trust in him will be made citizens of heaven and, and have a claim in the hope of the resurrection. But perhaps you are a Christian this morning and you, and you do have a love for Christ, but you also, and it, and it disturbs you and it bothers you, but it, you so often feel yourself pulled towards the things of this earth. I feel that way at times. We need this exhortation. We need this challenge to set our minds on things above. Sometimes, just practically speaking, this looks like saying, all right, what are the things that are pulling me to this earth? What are the things that are just consuming too much of my thoughts and energy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cut some of these things out of my life for a time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set aside. I'm going to stop reading uh, the, the sports page. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn off the TV. I'm going to set aside my phone so that whenever I kneel down to pray, I won't be so distracted by the things of this earth. I'm gonna set aside time that's just me and God time. And I'm gonna make sure that I, that I guard that time, that I'm not distracted. Brothers and sisters, we have to sometimes drag ourselves to the prayer closet, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not saved. But I would challenge you this morning, as our text does, Imitate those who are striving to set their minds on things above, who are awaiting the Savior from heaven. And practically, as one of the main applications of our text is imitate those who are doing that. Find people who are setting their minds on the hope of glory, who have this, this deep and real love for Christ, and spend time with those people. It's contagious. Gather together with your local church family and, and especially with those believers that you can really see love Christ and hunger for heaven. Spend time with them. We, our faith is meant to encourage one another. The Christian life is not a Lone Ranger experience. We are to be together. And even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. I mean, let's be real. But we're meant to be not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, but encouraging one another, giving thought how to stir one another up to love and good works, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Now, as, as we talk about this, one thing to note, just so there's no confusion, does being, you know, setting our minds on the hope of glory that awaits us, does this mean that we have to kind of withdraw completely from the world, maybe 
form some kind of some kind of monastic society, you know, become monks and nuns and just live in isolation and solitude? Not at all. Not at all. Christians should do good to all. And doing good includes working for a more just society. That's how we can serve our neighbors and live as citizens of heaven. We want to create better laws, better education, better health. And so love our neighbors and point them to the perfect kingdom where we don't need better laws and, and better health. But we want to love them now and point them to the king. And we're not called away from these things. They're not worthless. We, we build lives here, but we build knowing that at some point we will be called to forsake all of this and go to the place that Christ is building for us. For he said, I go to prepare a place for you. He didn't say, hey, prepare a place for me and when it's ready, I'll come back. No, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the way that the early Christians lived. Before the rise of the monastic movement, when retreating from the common society into monasteries became a thing, you know, one early Christian document from the second century commented on the life of the early Christians. It says that they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry, as do all others. They beget children. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. The Christian life is is a life of waiting, but it's a life of active waiting. We're not simply sitting on our hands but we are waiting. And what are we waiting for? Who are we waiting for? The Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that when he comes, it will mean new life. It will mean eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth, the dawning of the age to come that will have no sunset. Verse 21 speaks of what Christ will do when he returns. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't discard the body. He had flesh. He cooked breakfast on the beach for his disciples. He ate fish. He had a body. But his body wasn't like our lowly bodies. These mortal, decaying, aching, diseased bodies with back pain. His body was an immortal body. And one day, all of those who trust in him will be raised. And when he returns, transformed to have bodies like his. You know, some scientists falsely and foolishly hope to achieve this through technology. You'll hear some scientists today talking about, you know, one day science will develop so far that we'll overcome death itself. We'll become immortal. You know, we'll integrate computers into our bodies and we'll live forever. Science cannot achieve the transformation that is spoken of here. Only Christ can do that. Good medicine and technology may prolong life in this world, but it cannot hold off death forever. It cannot free us from the curse of sin, which is death. Only the one who dealt with the cause of death can free us from it. Only the one who died for us 
to break that curse. Only the one who himself died and who rose from the dead. I'll take his word over all the best opinions of the leading scientists today who think that they can defeat death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So who are you trusting in this morning? Are you waiting for a savior from heaven? Is your home there? Is your hope there? Or are you looking to the things of this world to provide you meaning and hope and life? Is the good life for you here? Or is the good life there? And in the meantime, there's a lot of work for us to do, even a lot of suffering for us to endure. Well, our text closes this morning, and where we'll kind of sum it all up is chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul had said at the beginning of chapter 3. Watch out for those who would teach you to put confidence in the flesh. Trust in Jesus alone. He's the only one that can save you, and he doesn't need your help. But that doesn't mean that you rest on your laurels. Those who are in Christ should pursue the prize for which he saved us. Conformity be made into his likeness. And we don't live for this world. We live for the world to come. We live for the hope of the resurrection. Don't be swayed by those who walk in another path whose end is destruction. Instead, imitate those who are pursuing Christ's likeness while trusting alone in Christ's merits. Imitate them insofar as they are true to the teaching of Christ. True citizens of heaven live heavenly lives. True citizens of heaven will live heavenly lives. Imitate them and watch out for the others. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Help us this morning. May this text remind us where our hope truly lies. May we set our hope and our minds, not on things of earth, but on things above. Help us, Lord, as we live life in this world to be so heavenly minded that we can actually be of some earthly good. We can do good here as we point people to the age to come and the only one who can bring us there. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.